Would you guys pray with me before you sit down? God, thank you for today and for the time that we have together to honor you, to worship uh, you, and just praise your name. Help us uh, during the next few moments to be uh, Father aware of your presence, of your word, and what you are doing in our hearts and in our lives. Father, we love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's so good to be here. I'm so, so pumped that you are joining us, whether you are here in this very room with me, which is amazing these days in 2020, whether you're joining us online. I'm so grateful that you're choosing to carve out time to worship with us, to study with us, to dive into uh, God's Word, to see what He is saying to us in November 2020. And can't we all just agree that reaching this point of this year feels like a major accomplishment, right? Like, we have made it 11 months almost through 2020, and man, it feels good. It feels good to be past election season, whether you're happy or not with the results. I'm just excited that I don't have to see any more Ann Wagner ads calling Jill Shoup a liar. It is just so good to be here today. Thank you for joining us. Like, uh, I... I introduce myself just about every week. My name is Elliot Voris. I get to be the student minister here and work with some awesome, awesome uh, teenagers and parents and volunteers. And I find myself just thankful every day uh, for the people that I get to work with and, and the, the job that I get to have. It's so good to be here with you this morning as well. And I want to start today with a pop quiz. But don't worry, it's just one question. And it's going to be easy. I think you guys will get it pretty quick, at least most of you guys. Who can tell me who these people are? British guards. Anybody know the official name? Bobby's not, not quite. These are the Queen's guards. I don't know if a king is in power, if that changes, but these are the Queen's guards. And when I was in middle school, uh, my family and I took a vacation to England, and we spent most of the time in England, in London, uh, but we, saw, we spent a whole day in Paris, and if anybody has been there, you know that exactly one day is all you need to see everything there is to see in Paris. I'm joking, it's not. But I did puke on the tour bus that day, it was, it was fun. But when we were in England, we saw the changing of the guards at Buckingham Palace, and that, like, that whole routine, the stuff they do, it like burned into my memory, just the, the, the pomp and circumstance behind it. And they have been guarding that palace, guarding the queen, the king for like hundreds of years. Those fools in the red coats that aren't allowed to laugh no matter how funny you are. And that has stuck with me, that they are, with their lives, I would assume, willing to guard and protect the queen of their country, no matter the cost. And it makes me wonder, and it makes me have a question for you, what is the one thing that you protect most intensely? What's like your most prized possession? And I think we could all agree, like family, health, yeah, those are on the list. Let's, let's think of like tangible things. Anybody have an answer? What's something that you protect intensely? Yeah. A signed baseball? By who? Carlos Martinez, very good. Anybody else? Prized possessions? Bo, you got one? Excellent, excellent. Anyone got something real special that they like to hold on to? No? Still waking up? It's okay. Yeah? My mom's 
Your mom's Bible. Very cool. That is awesome. My in-laws have like this family Bible from generations ago, and it has all the family tree stuff. And someday my mother-in-law was like, yeah, we don't need that. We can probably throw it out. But we, we stopped it. We stopped it from happening. Don't worry. I think for me, it's kind of a tie. I've got a lot of books, and I've got a lot of tools. Those two things are probably like the tangible things that like I collect and enjoy and use the most. In fact, this is one of my favorites. This is the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy. And if you're not a sci-fi nerd like me, that's okay. Just important, important books in the sci-fi universe, in case you were wondering. The guy who wrote iRobot, that's the dude. But this one is special because this is a gift for my father. It was his when he was a kid. And somewhere in here, I have like a, a napkin from Disneyland that he was using as a bookmark when he was a kid in the car on his way to Disneyland reading in the back seat. How he didn't get carsick, I don't know, but that was, that was him. But I also have like the expanded universe of the novels, and it's, it's just one of the things that reminds me of the things that I hold dear, the things that are important to me. Whether I've read them or not, I've got a lot of books. Whether I use them or not, I've got a lot of tools. And those things, I, I, I tend to hold somewhat selfishly, maybe, if that makes sense. I, I like to protect them. I like to guard them. I like to treat them nicely. And I think if we were to be honest with ourselves and move out of the realm of tangible physical objects and into the metaphorical figure of speech world, I think we could say that our heart is our most valued possession. In the sense that your heart is sort of the core of you, the, the very essence of what it means to be you, is something that often we hold, very, hold in a very important position, and we guard it really, really closely. And sometimes that is super, super good trying to draw boundaries between us and other people who are going to have a negative effect on us, that's important. Protecting that, guarding that heart, that's a really important thing. But sometimes we can maybe take it a little too far. We can put up those, those boundaries, but eventually they can become walls and barriers that disconnect us from the people around us, sometimes even the people who care about us the most. It's a catch-22 that we guard our heart, it's very important, but sometimes we take it a little bit too far. And I don't think that's just true in our world today in the relationships between the people around us. I think that's true in our relationship with Jesus. Often, I think we guard our hearts in some specific areas and maybe less so in others from God's interference, from His meddling in our lives. And I know that's true for me. I grew up going to church. In fact, here's a picture of the church that I grew up at. It's First Christian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. It was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. And if you look at it from a helicopter, it looks like a fish. I don't know why he did it, but he designed it that way. In fact, my parents got married in that church. And next month is their 40th anniversary. Like, congratulations, Mom and Dad. Mom, I know you are watching right now. Congratulations, we love you, and if I, don't, if I haven't made you feel old yet, I don't know what else I can do. But they were married in that church. I grew up, ever since I was like the smallest child, going to that church, being really involved. I was 
at all the children's programming, remembering all the verses and doing all the Jesus point things. And that was a big part of our family. My dad was an elder as we were growing up and my parents played in the praise band. My mom works at the church. She's like the church secretary. It was a big part of us, but even as a student, as a kid, there were always parts of my heart that I would sort of keep to myself. That Jesus, you can have like all these other parts, but this little section I might hold on to. I might keep this part in the dark. I might not want to let you interfere with what's going on in my heart and in these dark corners. Even today as a pastor, that's a struggle that I have. There are places in, in my heart, in my life, that I, I, I am hesitant to give up control, that I, I am reluctant to let Jesus work on and work with. And I suspect that it would be similar if you were to look at your heart. So what parts of your heart might be off limits to God? If you were to take stock, if you were to look at your life, if you were to look at your heart and think about where are the places that maybe you're not allowing Jesus to work on you? Going back to books for a second. When I was in high school, I read George Orwell's 1984. Probably a bunch of you did. And I remember there was a part of me that was like the super Jesus freak, like, this is immoral. They're talking about stuff that we shouldn't be talking about as high schoolers, so I can't read this book. But my English teacher was like, just chill, dude. And when I got through some of it and I started reading it, I was... This, this book changed my life, not in the way necessarily that the book is meant, like, yeah, we all know war is peace, freedom is slavery, we get all that stuff, but this book was really the first time I can remember being able to read a fiction story, read a made-up storyline, and connect it to current events in my life, to connect it to the culture that I was living in. And that was like an awakening of how literature can inform and impact my life. And in a lot of ways, whether or not you like the book, I think you can probably point to a similar story maybe at some point in your life that really had an important and profound impact on the way you look at the world. And that's why we are talking about Jesus' parables for the last couple of weeks. We're in this series, Cool Story Bro, and we're looking at some of Jesus' parables because he spoke in these parables often, and he brought a lot to the table in terms of meaning and truth and power through these fictionalized stories. Because stories speak to us. Stories communicate truth to us. Stories move us and change us in ways that just data or some lesson or sermon or lecture, just can't. So today we're going to look at the last parable that we're looking at for this series, and it's going to be in Mark chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to there. If you don't, you can use one of the... I, I don't know if we have Bibles in the chairs anymore. You can use the Bible app on your device or on your computer at home. Mark 4 is where we're going to be starting. And before we get into the parable... Let's, uh, let's set the stage, set the scene. So this is Mark 4, verse 1. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lakeshore. A very large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. 
Then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on the shore. And if we pause there for a second, Jesus is in a boat talking to a whole bunch of people. And I, I even got a picture. This is from the actual day that it happened, believe it or not. Jesus is sort of like in this makeshift amphitheater setup. He's like, I got a bunch of people I need to talk to. I can back myself away, be a little bit lower, and they can all gather around and hear me. And that's what it would have looked like. So Jesus is on the lake, in the water, and the people are on the shoreline around him, and he's about to launch into this long sermon that's mostly parables, which up to this point in Jesus' life is a little bit uncommon. He's been teaching a bunch. He's been doing a bunch of, like, lessons and object lessons and miracles and all, all sorts of cool stuff along the way, but this point, he's sort of leaning into these parables in a way he hadn't yet. In fact, most of the sermon that we're about to read, or most of the sermon that we would read if we went past this first parable, is just parables. So in verse 2, we read, He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Again, we'll pause there. These parables are an important way that Jesus communicates His truth. And they've been working on people's hearts, in people's lives, for a long, 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 long time, like thousands of years, ever since Jesus spoke them. In fact, here's an old painting from the uh, Hortus Delicarium. If you know what Latin is, I don't know what that means, but it's like a thousand-year-old Bible dictionary. And they painted this picture illustrating this, the parable that we're about to read today. People have been reading and discussing and digesting this parable, this story, and what it means for our lives for a long, long time. So Jesus, the way it goes, he tells the parable, has a small discussion with his disciples, his closest friends, then he explains the parable to them. So before we get into the parable, which we will, I promise, we'll get there, don't worry, Aiden, before we get into the parable, let's take a detour into the middle to see why Jesus is speaking in these parables. Verse 10, Later, when Jesus was alone with the twelve disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him what the parables meant. He replied, You are permitted to understand the secret of the kingdom of God, but I use parables for everything I say to outsiders so the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they see what I do, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, If you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand all the other parables. So he's saying, you guys, there are more parables to come. You better get your game on and figure out what these mean. But did you catch what Jesus said there for a second? Like, he teaches in parables so that when they see what I do, they will not, they will learn nothing. When they hear what I say, they will not understand. Otherwise, they will turn to me and be forgiven. That sounds a little rough around the edges, right? That sounds a little, Jesus, why are you like purposefully hiding what you're trying to say to these people? He's actually quoting a dude named Isaiah who wrote uh, hundreds of years before Jesus, and he was called by God. In, in, this is Isaiah chapter 6. He says uh, to, to God, God asks, who am I going to send to all my people? Isaiah's like, well, I'll go, I'll go. God says, yes, 
Go and say this to my people. Listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people, he sang to Isaiah. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. Again, that seems a little odd, perhaps. You and I might make a distinction these days between something that is intentionally caused and something that is merely an effect of something else. I might decide that I really hate my big toes. I don't know why, but I might. Who knows? And I might do something about that. I might decide I'm going to kick a brick wall to teach them a lesson. The cause is that I don't like my toes, and the effect that I'm intentionally bringing about is that they are bloody and their toenails look kind of weird for like a long, long time. Or... I might decide that it's a really good idea for my middle school and high school students if I show off my backflip that I haven't done in like three or four years. And I also might kick the concrete ground, and the result is the same, that my toes are in a lot of pain, there's a lot of blood, and the toenails look very funky for a very long time. One of those I caused on purpose, right? The other one is merely an effect, a side effect of some other decision, some other action that I took. For the record, the backflip one is the true story, and it hurt a lot. You and I might make the distinction between something genuinely being caused and intended and something merely being a side effect. For the mind 2,000 years ago, when Jesus is speaking, that's not so much a distinction they focused on. The end result is the same. So when Jesus and Isaiah are saying these words, harden their hearts. They'll see what you're doing, but they will learn nothing. It's almost like he's saying, I'm going to speak this truth from God, and I am going to let everybody know what God is up to, and I'm going to say it so loudly and so frequently and so regularly and so passionately that they are going to get sick of hearing it. And eventually they will harden their own hearts, and they will cut themselves off from hearing Jesus' message. That's rough, isn't it? But if we go back a couple of weeks, these parables have a way of getting us to look closer. And I really like the way the message paraphrases what Jesus says in verse 11. You've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works, but to those who can't see it yet, Everything comes in stories, creating readiness, nudging them toward receptive insight. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, the thing I said, that the whole point of these parables is that Jesus invites us to look closer, to look deeper, and he also shows us all about his kingdom. That's what the whole point of these parables are. So when he's talking in parables, he's giving people an invitation, saying, hey, Come with me. Let's look at this. Let's read this. Let's dive into this story and scratch below the surface and see what's really going on. Let me illustrate this upside-down kingdom with some stuff that you'll understand. So, with all of that out of the way, you guys made it. Way to go. Let's actually read the parable. This is Mark 4, verse 3. Listen. A farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. 
The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. And since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants, so they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So Jesus uses this picture, this, uh, this image that would have been really easy for them to, oh, sorry, don't forget to silence your phones, would have been really easy and like readily accessible for these people in the audience. They were, they were in agrarian society, kind of like the Midwest. I still don't understand farming, but I know there's seeds and plants and crops and harvesting that happens. He was speaking in a way that people would have understood just naturally. They would have seen it every day, people throwing seeds around. They would have just reached into a bag or a bucket and just scattered their seed as far as they could in every direction because they didn't plow before they planted back then. They actually plowed after the seed was scattered through the field. So they're throwing it everywhere they can in hopes that every available ounce of good soil will have some seed in it. They're just throwing it anywhere they can. And some of it falls on different kinds of soil and has different kinds of results because of it. So then Jesus, uh, he describes what is going to happen. He, he answers the disciples' questions like, what does this parable mean? Why are you telling this weird, stinking story in the middle of this ocean? What's going on, Jesus? And he talks about the four different kinds of soils. First, in verse 14, uh, he's answering the, the, people's, the, the disciples' question. The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. So we know... The seed is God's word, the message of Jesus, the hope that Jesus brings. That is the seed that we're talking about. The farmer just throws it everywhere he can. That's the part that Jesus is describing. In verse 15, the seed that fell on the footpath represents those that hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. So we've got this like path, right? This uh, packed down dirt that just, it's like you're wandering through the forest and there's a path that's maybe not naturally made, but just people have made it over the course of time. It's packed down and that kind of thing. That's the stuff that Jesus is talking about. It's impenetrable. Like there's just no way for the seed to actually break into the soil to make its way and, 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 and take root. And the way Jesus is describing it, that's the people who are just so so closed off to anything Jesus is offering, has their hearts so guarded that not even the, the amazing message of Jesus' grace and love and hope can make it through. And nothing happens. They hear the word, but nothing happens. Just like seed that is landed in a pile of gravel, there's nowhere for it to go. And Jesus describes this this uh, shallow soil, this rocky soil. Verse 15. Nope, verse 16. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, 
They don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. So imagine like it's, it's good soil on top, but underneath it, it's that same rocky soil, that packed down rock. And so the, the roots may go down, but they don't have anywhere to go and they can't stand up to the weather, to the, the elements, and pretty quickly they, they, they wither up and die. And Jesus compares that to people who are excited when they hear his message. They are excited when they hear his word and the amazing things that he's planning to do. In, in student ministry, we talk about what can happen over the summer, this camp high. Like we go to this awesome uh, camp on the beach every year, except for 2020. Every summer we go to this, uh, this beach camp where there's amazing music, amazing speakers, amazing fun that happens, and people are like, yeah, this Jesus guy, he's awesome. But then when you leave camp, you have to go back to your regular life. You have to go back to the, the friends that were there the, before, the homework that was there before, the family life that was there before, and soon it can really easily, that high wears off and fades out, and if you don't nurture it, if you don't nourish it, that relationship with Jesus doesn't really last. Eventually, it may become inconvenient or maybe just not as easy to be in love with Jesus as it was at camp, and that fades. And the same thing happens in all of our lives. That's not just a thing that students experience. Jesus is saying these people who are in this shallow, rocky soil, eventually lose interest, or eventually they're, it's too much trouble to follow Jesus, and it just, their relationship with him fades. And then in verse 18, Jesus says, the seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life, the lure of wealth, and the desire for other things, so no fruit is produced. He talks about this soil that's crowded. And when we think about seed, like this, the seed that falls among the weeds, right, or the thorns, a lot of the time we think like this already growing weed, but it's really like a seed that grows alongside the seed that the farmer was planting. Like there's no seed, there's no plants already in the field. It's an empty field, but some of the soil has other things in it as well. And those things eventually crowd out and choke out God's word. I think if I were honest with myself and if I were possibly a little bold with you, I think many Christians in America, in St. Louis County, in West County, find themselves as this kind of soil. We've got a lot of other options. We've got a lot of other things that can crowd out the passion that we have for Jesus, can take up our time, our focus, our energy, and our effort, and we can put Jesus on the back burner, or it becomes an afterthought. Like, yeah, Jesus is still cool, but I got to figure out the mortgage, I got to figure out the bills, and the car is broken, I got to get that fixed, and I got to go to work, and I got all this stuff to do, and before long, we don't have much room or bandwidth left for Jesus. There's this soil that's crowded. And finally, 
Uh, in verse 20, Jesus says, and The seed that fell on the good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. So you've got this good soil that is receptive, that is ready, that hears Jesus' words, his hope, his love, his truth, and like, yeah, I am all in. And they keep that up. They actually act on those words of Jesus. They actually put them into practice in their lives, in their hearts. The people who don't fade away when following Jesus is inconvenient or causes trouble. The people who don't get distracted by wealth or things or stuff or tasks or whatever else might be on your plate. These are the people, Jesus is saying, be the good soil. Be the people who hear my word, who understand that it takes action, that it takes a response. He, even, he says anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. Your translation might say something like, he who has ears, let him hear. And that sounds all nice and flowery and a little bit passive, but Jesus is actually giving like an imperative, a command, like listen up if you are one of the people who is digging under the surface, who is looking deeper to see what I'm actually talking about, we've got some work to do. So in this story, everybody actually hears the word, whether, you're, whether, the soil, whether it's the soil uh, that's the, the path, the rocky soil, the crowded soil, or the good soil. Everybody hears the word. Everybody gets the seed but it's only the good soil that actually puts it into practice, actually does something with it, actually lets Jesus' words affect their heart, even the parts of their heart that maybe they're guarding really intensely. And the truth is that all of us have been all of these different kinds of soil at one time or another. And I think you could all, I could, point to a different time in your life or a different season where yeah, you were this rocky soil that's impenetrable, that's just cynical about everything, and you don't want to hear anything. Or maybe the excited, camp-high Jesus follower who eventually fades away because it's not as easy, it's not as automatic. Or maybe you're just overcrowded with, uh, with money problems or addictions or, or work or things that get in the way. Or maybe you are this good soil that's listening and hearing and intently working to put Jesus' words into practice. I think sometimes we can be all the different types of soil at the same time. Yeah, there can be parts of our heart that are a little guarded that we don't want to let Jesus mess with. Yeah, there can be parts that are shallow, that are excited. There are parts that are crowded, and there are parts that we are deeply invested in our faith, in our walk with Jesus, and we let him inform our choices and our decisions. But the cool thing is, the good news is that Jesus wants to make every part of us good soil. He doesn't want just a little chunk of our heart or parts of it here and there. He wants to make all of us this good soil that's ready and willing to act on what he's saying. So which types of these soil do you think represents your heart best today? Or which types of soil might represent you? 
How are you and your heart and your thoughts responding to what Jesus is doing in your heart, what Jesus is speaking to you, to his message of love, hope, grace, forgiveness? We've got another song that we're going to play that we can sing along with, and uh, I want to invite all of us to reflect on God's Word, to let Him inform us of the parts of our heart that we may not be giving Him entirely, the parts of our heart that are dark corners, the closets that we're trying to keep locked away. So I'll pray, and then the song is going to play, and and let's think about what He's calling us to and how we are responding to that. God, thank you for today, for the love you've given, the the grace, the hope, the mercy and compassion that we could never earn or deserve. God, thank you. I ask that you would just be present in this moment. Help us to hear and understand what it is you're calling us to. Help us to open up the parts of our heart that we don't want to let go of. Help us to give you control in places that we are hesitant. Show us that you are with us. Show us that we are in good hands. Father, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.